0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong, and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. When I built my business Future Women, I brought together a team of highly creative storytelling media types alongside an analytical and technical group of perfectionists, and it has become a powerful combination. But in this podcast, I want to concentrate on leading creatives. They are full of ideas, they don't necessarily work in a linear way, and they can struggle to stay engaged on a long-term project. CEO of the Sydney Writers' Festival, Brooke Webb, has a Master's of Arts Management, is a graduate of theatre directing from NIDA, and has had a long career working among Australia's most creative people. So, I've invited Brooke in to discuss how to effectively lead a highly creative team, how to foster creativity and problem solving, and why even the most technical people need to learn how to tell a good story in business. Welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Brooke Webb. Take me through your career path and how you eventually became CEO of the Sydney Writers Festival.
1: Thank you for having me. you know, it's been a long and winding road for me. I don't have a traditional publishing background, but what I do have is 25 years' worth of leadership experience, definitely in the arts. Uh, I actually did start in publishing. I was an editor for Black Ink. I went to NIDA, studied theatre, worked with Mel Brooks in Broadway on The Producers, worked with Julie Taymor on The Lion King, then became Artistic Director of Cirque du Soleil, so made circus shows, three circus shows, North America... South America, uh, Middle East, and then came back to Australia. Oh, no, I didn't. I went to Universal Music. So I was Executive Director for Universal Music in New York. And I was touring rock and roll, concerts, everyone from Sonic Youth to kind of Irish music, you name it. Came back to Australia, had no idea what I was going to do, what I wanted to do. So I started a PhD as a creative arts therapist and I just couldn't find where I fit anymore. I was I think it's really hard when you're going when you're overseas and you come back to Australia. Thankfully I was quite young when that happened. And then I was given a position at the Sydney Opera House and produced their 40th anniversary celebrations, which was 10 years ago now. Then I became festival producer for all of their festivals. So Vivid was my main one, graphic festival, Festival of Dangerous Ideas, all about women. Then I moved to Tasmania and was the festival director of the Taste of Tasmania. And that was, I was kind of equal creative director and then equal CEO in that role. And then COVID hit and ironically, you know, I was was planning on going to Italy. Ironically, I couldn't even leave Hobart. Eventually got myself back to Sydney and then um, I had the good fortune of, of being offered the CEO at the Sydney Writers Festival. So my background is very much, you know, I've, I've worked in all the art forms, but then over the past 12 years, I've really specialised in festivals. So everything from contemporary music festivals to food and wine festivals to arts festivals, now to literature.
0: That's an incredible career.
1: Yeah. Look, I've, I have been really lucky, but I've also worked really hard.
0: Absolutely. You've yeah. not been lucky. You've done all the <laughs> hard yards. Yeah. And you, you often forget the sacrifices that you make yeah. for that. Yeah. What I wanted to talk to you about today, though, is being a creative and managing creatives and I guess that intersection with a successful business as well. So taking the last point first, how have you managed the ideas and the big picture and the excitement of doing a major event with actually making it commercially
1: successful. I think you've just hit on where the tensions are. You know, there's a reality, there's a business reality that we have and how we're going to get there is by harnessing that creativity. That's really the only way we can do it. I think the skill and the the experience that I bring is having a foot in both camps. You can't produce something if you, well, you you know, you've got an idea but you need to know how you're going to produce it. So, it's got to be grounded in kind of a sense of reality of how we're going to do that and then you can start building on
0: those ideas. What does your role actually entail day to day? If you look at the
1: role in three parts really, so I've got the team. I lead the business for the Sydney Writers Festival and in order to do that, I bring in an artistic director, I bring in a head of production, I bring in a head of marketing, I bring in a head of ticketing. I have about eight direct reports, but right now we're a team of 44 people. So that's kind of one element of the job and it's looking after the operations, making sure that we we are hitting those kind of commercial targets. The second stream of the job is I have a board of directors that I report to. So right now we're a board of, a, of 10 board directors and it's reporting to them, working on the st- kind of the strategic challenges that the, the business faces. And if you look at the third kind of tier of the role, it's the external stakeholder management, so largely government, particularly state government. Uh, we do lobby a lot of local government and of course, federal government. So, it really is a lot of that kind of
0: external stakeholder management. Are you wildly competitive with the other writers' festivals around Australia?
1: Look, we are, but we're also... <laughs> I was going <gonna laughs> to say, mean, if you say no, I wasn't going to believe you. <laughs> I, know, I know. There's no question that we are, but we also work very collaboratively together. And the thing that we that's happened this year is that every single literary festival is in May. So, it was about jumping on calls and saying, when are your dates? When are you launching? When are you launching? Who are you bringing out and sharing as much talent as we possibly can? We actually have a really friendly and collegiate relationship with the Other Writers Festivals.
0: Are you creative yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's certainly helped me in the job, but largely because I couldn't manage creative people if I didn't speak that language. But what makes me creative is I'm driven by innovation. I'm driven by the ideas side of things. That's what gets me excited. That's the fuel, I think, and the heartbeat of what we do. And then it's about
0: finding out commercially how we can achieve that. How much of your brain is creative and how much of it's operational or business orientated?
1: Some days I would tell you it's 50-50 and then other days I would tell you that the sexiest part of my job is the creative and the the operational and the commercial. Like, the commercial is really creative for me. And having worked on Broadway, which is a machine, or having worked in Universal, which is an absolute machine, it's my signature. Like, commercial is the way that I think. But the operational and the admin side of my job, I mean, I'm not going to lie, it can be such a grind. Mm. But it's, you know, Insurance. Who wants you know? Who wants to talk about insurance when you can talk about this incredible program that we've pulled together? Uh, But I think in kind of neutral state, I would say it's seventy percent creative and thirty percent operational or strategic.
0: And I ask because I just hold quite close to me the job of programming International Women's Day Leadership Summit. So I know what a little bit about what goes into programming something that is critically successful and it's very easy to lap up the accolades of a great keynote and a great day of speeches and interactivity and forget whether or not you've actually made it commercially successful but i i would imagine you judge yourself about the commercial success perhaps more than others would oh 100% absolutely i mean that is
1: that is the core of my job And particularly, I think, coming out of two years of COVID where you are in survival mode and you are doing everything on the smell of an oily rag, barely surviving through COVID to now. So it's made the commercial
0: far more important, I think, than it has been pre-COVID. Is being around creative people and managing creative people, and I guess managing your own creative energy as well, so... What do you think is different about being in an organisation where mostly it's built on creativity? Working on a writers' festival or on Broadway is very different from working in an accounting firm or a law firm. So how would you articulate the differences that you have to encounter or manage every day compared to what many other people encounter every day?
1: It's a really great question and one that, that, I know this sounds bizarre, but... I haven't worked in the corporate world for a very long time. But what I do know about and why I love working in creatively charged areas of the business is that when you're working with creatives, you're working with people that, you know, they obviously work really long hours. No one gets paid anywhere near enough where they they should be. But you're also working with people because they have dreams and they've got strong ideologies and they've got strong belief systems They're strong personalities and don't really want to generalise here, but in my experience, you're also dealing with emotions and you're dealing with high levels of expression. And sometimes you're dealing with neurosis and narcissism and all these kind of qualities, but let's put them on the shelf for the moment. The challenge here is you harness that and, oh, my God, it is one of the most rewarding things in the world because people are invested And when you're doing it together as a team and you succeed, that feeling is just, if you could bottle that feeling of joy, you'd be a millionaire. And I think the shadow side of that is that sometimes it does
0: feel very personal,
1: but the reward and that sense of collectiveness is what I live for.
0: What about when you're the creative and you're going through your career perfectly happily in those roles, and then you get promoted and suddenly you're running the team? You're not responsible for the creative ideas, you're in charge. Tell me how you navigated that.
1: Oh my God, that is the, I think that is, has been one of the hardest times in my life to do that. And I want to say it was six or seven years ago where exactly that happened you're completely out of your comfort zone. And how do you do that? You learn, got to trust the team. And it's about asking questions. And I think that would be my advice to anyone that is in a similar situation.
0: Did you just give up your own creative license where you go, no, I want that story or that person? Do you just give it up? No,
1: no. You just challenge. Yeah, that's it. You find ways, because you're working with a team of experts that you've brought in, you find ways of being able to, you'll be amazed when you let go of what you think needs to happen and you bring the team in, you'll be amazed at how much those ideas actually expand and where you land. And That's a really difficult thing to let go of at the beginning because it requires quite a lot of... I mean, it's scary, particularly because I think the nature of working in events or being a producer is that you're a control freak. You've got to let go of that control. And the team, they're now the control freaks. You know, you've got to get them invested. So... But you don't lose it. You just put it on the shelf and you bring it out when you need to.
0: So do you consciously think about how to manage different creative personality types? Not anymore.
1: I, I find it interesting and it consistently challenges and makes me evolve in the way that I lead people. But no, it's not a conscious thought anymore. It's what's really important for me is getting to know the person. So not having a one-size-fits-all approach to a collective group of people, but But knowing individual people. And, you know, I have so many members in my team that are such high achievers and they don't work well under structure. But then I have another member of the team that does need that structure. So, it's almost kind of adapting my approach for each person, knowing that we've got to get here. How are we going to do it? How do we do that? And... You know, so the the team get invested in that as well. They're on that journey.
0: So I'm thinking about a group of writers. You've got mm-hmm. how many writers at the festival? So we have three hundred and eighty writers. Okay. So we've got three hundred and eighty writers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some are gonna be extroverted, some are gonna be introverted, some are gonna want sparkling water, you know, delivered at a certain temperature. Some people will be very happy to walk on stage with no prep. I mean, that bit of the management of creative. Egos, sensibilities. What does that look like for you? So there's
1: the team environment and who are, you know, also highly creative. Then there's the actual working with the writers and which is what we're talking about. And I think you go into that knowing that your role is actually customer service at that point. You're not managing them other than if there is a problem that you've got to you've got to resolve. But We have spent a lot of time working through our systems and processes. So the idea for us is that we make it as easy as possible for the writers. Our aim is to make sure that the writers have the most incredible time at this festival. Do you think it's a myth that creative people are hard to manage? No, I don't. I think there's no question that creative people are far more interesting to manage. And they can be very difficult you know it can be difficult because you you are dealing with highly charged emotions sometimes but i think it would be it's a very leading question to suggest that that is all that creatives are i think that the as i say the reward is you know that the benefits far outweigh the negatives
0: i used to always think when i was running teams of writers and journalists that um i only had a capacity to manage An X number of that supercharged creative energy. You know, the one that turns up in the office one day and wants to do a thousand different things and is punching out 15 stories and has got a dozen ideas and is high-fiving everyone. And then two weeks later, you know, oh, no, I'm deep in thought and I won't be in and you won't see me for a month. I got very used to that rhythm because I had big newsrooms and therefore lots of that going on, but I did still think there was a cap on the number that you could manage. Do you ever feel like that? Or are you just so immersed in it that it feels normal to you?
1: No, I mean, you know, over the past two years, at particularly at the Sydney Writers Festival, we have had to, in many ways, rewire the way the organisation works. So in terms of the recruitment of incoming staff, I think that's very much you know, in the back of my thinking, it's like all these ingredients because I want to, this is the cake that I want to make. I do feel that, you know, too many strong personalities. As the CEO, I'm trying to create an environment that is the most balanced and most harmonious environment that is safe for the team so that they can, they can thrive. And it's understanding what that environment is so that people can thrive. Um, and I think personality is definitely coming into play with that.
0: Let's talk about giving feedback and constructive criticism. Notoriously, writers, our creatives, producers find that a difficult process. How have you navigated that? I think
1: my approach now is asking questions. But then sometimes it's a, it's a case also of being direct and saying, you know, this is what I need. Is it possible for you to be able to do it in this way? This is not giving me what I need. It really depends on the personality because myself, I'm an overthinker. So I'd much rather someone just be super clear and direct with yep. me. But if someone is very sensitive and, you know, particularly not in a great headspace at this time, I'm going to approach it more delicately.
0: Yep. I have been in a situation where a a publisher has given feedback on a book which was incredibly difficult to produce and very time-consuming and exhausting. And the feedback was so blunt that I was just grateful that it was only given to me because it had been given to other members of the team who had laboured over it and it was their baby, it struck me then that if you are in those roles, you do have to be very delicate about the way you impart information.
1: You can't go in having a direct conversation if the trust isn't there and if you don't have that existing relationship. So I think part of the job of the manager is to develop that relationship because it really is about how is that person going to hear this the most effective way? Like how are they going to hear it? Because it's actually more important to me that they hear it. You know, when I, when I was at NIDA, I remember doing this acting workshop, which was really interesting. It was basically there are five different ways that people receive information. Is it psychologically? Is it emotionally? Is it physically? And that kind of has informed a lot of my approach because everyone
0: is different. So it's how do people hear information? And can you identify that in someone before you give, like if you when you go in to give difficult feedback, mm-hmm. have you already kind of made a, a, an educated guess about how that person hears feedback?
1: Yeah. And if I haven't, I'm actually going to ask the question. I'm going to start by saying, I have some news that you're not going to like. We're going to have a conversation that you may not like. So I, I do want to start by saying, by giving them the heads up that there's a difficult conversation that's coming. If, if we're having a, a conversation and we don't see eye to eye, I will say, I would like to challenge you on the way that you, on the way that you're seeing this. And then asking a lot more questions through that. But one of the greatest things that has helped me is a year of doing a PhD in creative arts therapy, which was essentially clinical psychology. So as a, as a leader, my, kind of my training is through psychology. It's getting to know people. And their health and well-being is, is absolutely the primary focus for me. I actually want people to come into the job, get all the tools, but I want them to leave better. You know, so I have no interest in tearing people down. It's really how they hear it.
0: So what do you do with an underperformer?
1: Again, it depends on that personality, but it's having a trusting relationship. And I think you do have to be, you do have to make your expectations clear about what you need, what priorities we're looking at day to day. I think it is is—it is asking the question, how are they going? But it's having transparency and clarity, really, in those conversations. Have you ever had an
0: underperformance conversation that's gone really badly?
1: Oh, absolutely. Often people are completely unaware that they're underperforming. And so I think the mistake is always that I've left it too late because I've I've wanted to see them kind of
0: improve. I do that too.
1: And that doesn't help. No, It doesn't help them.
0: I got asked a question the other day. I was doing some leadership questions and answers and it was, if you've got a staff member that you really like, who's one of your favourites but she's underperforming. What do you do? What would your answer be? There's no question that that is really, it's
1: really tough. I think instinctively, you always want to put in a little bit of space between things, but it's probably more interesting to lean into that and have a conversation and sit down. You've got to have an honest conversation. And the
0: earlier the better. And the earlier the better. Let's talk about storytelling. As a administrator of storytelling, on the one level you are storytelling yourself, encouraging vast numbers of Australians to come to Sydney and go to the Sydney Writers Festival. Are you good at telling a story yourself? Do you know, I work with a group of people who are extraordinary storytellers.
1: I work with people that just tell the most incredible stories so I I probably think less of my storytelling abilities, but I love a good story. I live for stories. That's what I think connects us in life. I think that's what connects us, that the distance gets a lot smaller when someone tells a great
0: story. So I have a huge appreciation for storytelling. And do you think it's important as a leader to be able to tell your story to your team?
1: I do. I think it's important to be able to tell stories, but I don't think it's important that unless asked that the team, because it's actually about them for me, it's more about them than it is about me standing up there and telling them my story. I want to think that I'm there to support the team.
0: What sort of leader are you?
1: I would say I'm 80% empowering and supportive, but then there's 20%. This is the way that we're going to do it. And That's important to me because we, because the team are such great storytellers and I'm not just talking about the Sydney Writers Festival I'm talking about throughout my career. We've all had those meetings that could have been an email where you sit and you talk for hours and you're not getting through things. At some point when we're going around and around in circles, someone's got to make a call and that's my job. So again, 80% empowering and and supportive and then 20% we're going to do it
0: this way. And I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, that working in such a creative environment, there's quite often no right or wrong answer. Oh, there's a,
1: a million different ways to get to the same answer as well. No, I mean, sometimes I think there is a definite right and wrong answer in terms of, you know, we do a lot of strategic work, gaming things out, And there are definitely right turns and wrong turns. But you're absolutely right. We're focused on efficiency. So that often becomes the deal breaker. How do we, what's
0: the most efficient way we can get there? Moving to a non work capacity, I often meet people who have, say, an accounting job, but they harbour a desire to write. And I bet you meet people like this all the time who say, What I really want to be is a a writer. What do you say to them?
1: Do you know, I do meet a lot of people like that. Um, I've stopped telling people that I work at the Writers' Festival because there's a <laughs> lot of taxi drivers that have novels. The first thing I say is go for it. I mean, absolutely, the world needs more stories, particularly at this moment in time. But there's often two questions that we will ask, you know, and that is are you writing for friends and family or are you writing for the wider public? And if it's friends and families, then it's, it's you know, it's a little bit more liberal and it's still go for it. Absolutely go for it. If people are asking me if they can be in the festival with their book, obviously that gets a little bit awkward and and tricky because not everyone is a writer and
0: that's just the hard truth. And that that is very hard to express because not telling someone the truth, i.e. you actually can't write is not doing them a, a lot of good in a way because if they're about to throw in their perfectly well-paid accounting job to pursue a writing career when there's obviously no talent, real talent there, because it is like playing a game of football or reading a spreadsheet. Like, you either have a natural talent or you don't. I really, str- I really, can see I'm really, I really struggle with this. So, I often tell them to go and, you know, actually do some training in writing. So like a, a New South Wales Writers' Centre or yes. a short course, yeah. Do you? Is that the advice you give? 100%. Yeah. There's,
1: I think on a practical level, that's, there are tools out there. But I'm with you. You know, you really either have it or you don't. And what I do know from a lot of authors out there is that the good authors always land. You know, when I talk to, to writers, the advice that they pass on to emerging writers is, Read, read, read. Write, write, write. It really is that you've got to read everything and you've got to write. Yes. And that is the only thing that's going to make you better.
0: It's like playing game Finding football. Your voice. You yes. got to. Well, it's like playing football. You got to go and kick the ball. You got to train the muscles. You got to train the muscles. Yeah. It's. Uh, yeah. It's. Um. I think it's a particularly female thing too. There's a lot of. Women who want to tell their family story, as you say, want to tell the generational story, want to tell their own story and like the feeling and the, I guess, the achievement and I guess the solitude of, oh, I'm going to go and sit in an apartment in Paris and write. I know. The um, the the writer has
1: such a, um, there's such a mystique around the writer, isn't there? There's always kind of a half bottle of whiskey and a yes. tortured artist kind of vibe. And
0: I think it's one of the hardest things I have ever done. What made you want to start writing? Her name is Jamila Rizvi and she made me. (laughs) Really? Yes. Oh, wow. So, yes, we did a couple of books during COVID and uh, we did them together. And when I say together, I did what I could. And she did an enormous amount of the heavy lifting because she is a writer and she's a natural and she's gifted and she loves it. And I'd had a long career in journalism where I used to short form, punchy news style with a complete aversion to writing about myself. So she had to wrestle with me, as did the publishers. Was it a novel or a short story? No, we did a compilation. We did Untold Resilience, which was, I think, 18 stories of women who had lived through exceptional periods of history. And that, of course, was the beginning of COVID. And then we did Work, Love, Body, which was three essays, from the three perspectives that women experienced COVID. So they were COVID projects, immensely rewarding, uh, particularly Untold Resilience, and very proud of them, but probably the hardest thing I've ever done. If you can isolate the challenge of it, what what would that be? I can isolate it, putting words together, Mm. the really basic piece. Had the feeling, had the vision had the editor's instinct, but actually putting the right words in order to make a sentence. So that editor's instinct, was that like a critical voice? Well, I I understand the, you know, I understand what makes content and what makes a commercial production, which potentially makes it harder when you're the subject but i hadn't done the training i'd not a long time since i'd written so to your point about writing 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 reading 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 it's a muscle and if you haven't done it for a while you know you're not going to be able to run around that oval even though you were the olympic finalist in your 20s if you haven't done it it's a muscle that you have to exercise to be to remain good at it I don't think anyone's ever come into this podcast studio and interviewed me. (laughs) So I just want to give you credit for it's due. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Um, I want to finish with a really obvious question. Who are you reading at the moment and what, what authors are you loving? And give our audience that's listening to this for leadership advice some book advice. I've just finished Sam Neill's memoir, which is completely charming.
1: Wow. I was completely charmed by it. So many stories. And funny. He's funny. Jenny O'Dell, her focus is on the time economy, you know, the uh, attention economy. So fascinating. She's much more in the nonfiction space. Um, She's just released a brand new book, which I would wholeheartedly recommend, particularly because it's about... I think after coming out of COVID, where our time is somehow valued more, she has a lot to say on how to do nothing. It's really she's she's really interesting. I'm actually reading "Crying in H Mart" by Michelle Zauer. So many people have told me I have to read this book, and it's a memoir. She's um she's the lead singer of Japanese Breakfast, which is like an indie rock band, and she's she's really talented. I fell in love with Sarah Widman at the festival in 22. Still life. Everyone is still raving about it. Beautiful. Ah, oh, It's beautiful. Beautiful, yep. I went back and read the full catalogue of books. She inspires something in imagination. So I would wholeheartedly recommend. And then, of course, there's the business side of things. There is a journalist called Oliver Berkman. Mm. Do you know Oliver Berkman? No. He has just released a book called 4,000 Weeks, and the premise is that you've got 4,000 Weeks to live on the earth, where are you going to put your energy no. in And it's really, when you change the framing around that, it's mm. a really interesting question to ask yourself. I've got 4,000 weeks. How am I going to spend this time?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's great. And I'm obsessed with Kate Legg's book.
1: Oh, are you? Oh, gosh. Have you found it to be brutally confronting?
0: I found it to be generous, warm, Helen Garner-esque with a bit ah. of Julia Baird in it.
1: Okay. I've heard nothing but people raving about her book. I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to see her at the festival. It's it's still on my list. It's
0: this big. It's easy to finish. Anyway, yeah. this podcast has not done anything that any other podcast does when I interview people. So thank you very much for sending us completely, <laughs> completely off topic. But I knew I would do because... You're talking about one of the favourite things in the world, which is festivals and writers and creativity. So with a bit of Broadway and stuff thrown in there, a bit of cabaret. Yeah. Brilliant. I Great to talk to you.
1: You too. Thank you so much. It's, um, <laughs> thanks for having me. And thanks to your executive producer
0: here as well. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell. And audio imaging by Nat Marshall.